So I have told you in our in previous sessions about how God called Ray and I to Pennsylvania over a year before his graduation from seminary and how despite our disobedience in looking for positions in Pennsylvania, that God still worked all things out for our family to move here. He had a plan for us, and even though we didn't do what he wanted us to do, he still got us here, but God. And then I've told you about the ways that God worked out the timing in selling our house in Kentucky to be perfectly timed with my job ending and our homeowner's insurance being canceled, and but God. But this week I'm going to share one more big but God in our story of leaving Kentucky and what our, what our life looked like after moving. Um, but for this one I have to set the stage with a little bit of extra insight into me. So we are rewinding quite a ways. Um, I went to a small public school growing up. There were 67 students in my graduating class uh, and it was K through 12, but it had deep ties to the college in town, both from its um, history and, and the creation of the school, but also physically. We used some of their buildings. They did a lot of student teaching in our buildings. They did um, just things that, a lot of back and forth between the two. So in middle school, we were bussed up the hill to one of the buildings at the college for, for what was called industrial arts, an industrial arts class. So it uh, depended on what year you were, whether it was a six-week class or a nine-week class. Um, but one year we learned basic woodworking, creating a, a wooden project using all the tools the college had available to us. Uh, I had my first time using a computer-aided design or, or CAD drafting software using the college's computers. Um, my eighth grade year, it was more of a STEM class before STEM was really a thing. Um, and it was in that year we were given an assignment to design and build a bridge out of, out of balsa wood. Balsa wood is not a very strong wood. Um, I mean, you can cut it with a knife type of thing. And um, we had to build this bridge to hold a significant amount of weight. And it was in that assignment that I fell in love with the design and engineering process. I knew from the time I was in eighth grade that I was going to be an engineer. And later that school year was, was also when God spoke to me for the first time through my Bible reading. And I was reading about Mary being called to be the mother of Jesus and being told that God had this great plan for her and I knew very clearly that God had big plans for my life. And all I, all I walked away with, what I walked away with, God is going to use me like he used Mary. So that was age 13, right? Fast forward to college, I was in engineering school, still confident in engineering. I loved my classes. I was ready for my first uh, co-op position. It was a, an aspect of our program. It was an, an internship um, they had, that we had to do three of those throughout our career. So it was the summer of my sophomore year, and I was spending that summer semester working for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in Louisville. Um, 
Ray and I had been dating for just a few months at this point. He was spending his summer several hours away, serving as a summer missionary with a, a church in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. And I, so I spent many of my lunch breaks that summer sitting in a small park outside the building where I worked downtown and I was praying and just talking to God about how it was that he planned to use me like he said he would all those years earlier. And throughout that summer, God revealed opportunities to me to share the gospel as I worked and to be a light and, and specifically um, sharing the gospel with, with the security guard in the building that I was working in. And it, it was, became abundantly clear to me that God was going to use me as an, an engineer to be a light in my workplace. But God also made it clear to me that summer that I was supposed to be a pastor's wife, that I was supposed to come alongside someone um, and, and be a support in ministry. Now, as a side note, at this point, Ray was leaning towards missions. He knew he was called to ministry of some sort, but he was leaning toward missions um, and not pastoral or church ministry. And so I held these things close to my heart knowing that God was going to work things out and would carry them on to completion. Um, a year later, the next summer, I was working again as a, a, in a same um, with the Army Corps of Engineers. Ray spent the summer doing mission work in Thailand. And when he came home, uh, we were still dating. I knew I had to tell him that God had shown me that I was not supposed to be a missionary's wife and that I was supposed to be a pastor's wife. God spent the summer with him in Thailand telling him he was not supposed to be a missionary. He was supposed to be a pastor. And so here we come through these, these times that, that um, God was teaching both of us yet again in, in different ways that we didn't know was the same thing. So through the, the seminary years, uh, I had graduated with my master's in civil engineering. I was working for the Army Corps of Engineers now as a uh, full employee and not just as a, a student intern. Um, and there was a program for the seminary wives at the Southern, Southern Baptist Seminary where Ray was a student. And many times, um, throughout the, he, he was on the six-year plan because by vocational ministry he needed, um, he needed a, a full-time job to be able to be bivocational or else he'd have, yeah, anyway, that's a different issue. So we were on the six-year seminary plan instead of the three to four years. So I had lots of opportunities over those six years um, and was told by many people that I was wrong to have my child in daycare. Now he was in daycare in the building where I worked. Um, I would spend my lunch breaks down there. I was able to go down and breastfeed him at any point. Uh, something went wrong and they called me uh, and I was, I was down there in minutes. Um, but that, that I, I was supposed to be a wife and a mother and they, uh, they couldn't they couldn't just not say anything to me because that was what God called mothers to. And I said, well, God may have called you to that, but I know that God called me to something completely different. 
and that I am doing what God has called me to and that my calling from God is more important than your calling for me. I did, I said that probably not with the most tact that I should have, um, but that's what I said. And so, because I knew that God wanted me in that workplace. And over those six years of seminary, I, um, I had more opportunities to share the gospel. I would, I would travel with, with groups to do inspections of things and have opportunities to sit at dinner and talk about why, where God was taking Ray and I and why we were going and why we would just drop everything in one place and move somewhere, wherever that was. And so, so I was still a light to my coworkers. I was confident in that calling on my life. Um, I was confident because I was able to be a light to the daycare workers. And I knew that that was where I was supposed to be. Then we came to Pennsylvania. And as I shared previously, we moved before our house sold. So my entire paycheck was paying for the combination of the expenses for the house back in Kentucky and, and daycare expenses while I was working from home. And despite the agreement of a nine-month trial period and the work relationship going really well, my boss's boss decided he didn't want to set the precedent of working from home, and so they ended the position and I was forced to resign. It was also at this time that we started seeing some indications that Catherine had hearing loss. And we'd had an opportunity before Andrew was born, that's another story in itself, but um, they had they had to do some extra looking at his heart for some things that we had the discussion that if we ever had a child with special needs, I would stay home. I would, I would stop working and I would stay home. So here we are, we're faced with find another job or stay at home and walk through the hearing loss with Catherine. And since we didn't need my paycheck, we tightened our belts and I was going to spend a couple of years as a stay-at-home mom to get Catherine through the doctor's appointments, caught up on speech therapy and get her into kindergarten. Um, but this was also a time where being a light to my coworkers was harder because I was 600 miles away and I could do things through phone calls, but I not, not having those daily interactions with people. Um, and so we knew that God had closed the door, at least for the moment, on my working in engineering and he opened the door to being a stay-at-home mom. Something that I had just denied would happen. And God said, nope, this is where you are now. Um, my, my, his plan hadn't changed, but his plan was taking a turn that we didn't expect. God used um, used that time home with Andrew and Catherine to, to quickly reveal that we could accomplish so much more with respect to ministry if I was not working. My couple of years as a stay-at-home mom became over 10 years with the exception of a couple of temporary job roles. Um, and God took something 
that I had pushed so hard against while Ray was in seminary and turned it into something that has been a huge blessing and opportunity in our lives. He showed me his plan when I was 13 years old and has been carrying it to completion ever since, even though it doesn't look like I expected it to. And even when it felt like this huge disappointment and was discouraging and even scary, but God carried his plan to completion and God always keeps his promises. And so that's where we are in the book of Esther. God is keeping his promise and he is carrying out his plan to completion. So Esther 9, 1. So we have now reached the climax of the story of Esther. And we're going to see one more time God's hand at work as he preserves his people. It is one last reminder that God's people will always be safe and that God's enemies will always be punished forever. So when did this occur? The 13th day of the 12th month, which was, why is that day important? It, it's the day, the day that we have been waiting for the, the entire, well, not the entire book, since, since chapter two, we're, we've been headed this direction, right? This is, this is annihilation day. The day that the Jews have dreaded for almost a year. But what happened on this day? The Jews gained mastery over the Persians, over those who hated them. The tables were turned. The day that had been appointed by Haman's decree for the slaughter of God's chosen people in the empire. But Mordecai's day changed, changed it from destruction to deliverance. The Jews had permission to resist their enemies and had been given nine months to prepare for the encounter. And the people in the empire who hated the Jews were hoping for victory, but the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. So now we're, we're going to see some more about that with um, Esther 9, 2 through 5. Did as they pleased to those who hated them. 
Haman had great plans for this day. He expected a day of celebration and victory, not defeat. And it turned into an absolutely devastating day for the enemies of the Jews. And despite there being no mention of God, we know that his hand was behind this whole thing. So last year we studied Romans and we learned about Romans 8.28. Somewhere back here. And so we, we talked about that verse, and we talked about it's, it's for the good and for the glory of God. And this is a truth that we see not just throughout the book of Esther, but throughout the whole Bible. It's our theme verse, in our theme verse for the year, in Genesis 50, 20, we see God working the good of Joseph when his brothers meant to harm him. When we studied Daniel a couple of years ago, we saw God working for the good of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, despite King Nebuchadnezzar's intent of harm. And we also saw Daniel overcome the hatred and jealousy of others as he faced the lion's den. We saw that God rocked my world when I was forced to resign from my job, and and we chose not to look for more, and I became a stay-at-home mom, and I focused on being a pastor's wife. It was far from easy, but has been so good. Uh, Landon Dowden, the commentator for the Christ-Centered Expository Commentary, says, as familiar as this verse is to me, I still need grace in relearning to believe it. There are just so many times when we are tempted to say something like this, I know you said you would work all things for our good, Lord, but I can see no way in which this situation can be worked for the good. When you are tempted to doubt, just reread the book of Esther and be reminded that God truly can work all things for the good of his people, even if that means dealing with drunk kings, defiant queens, harem life, and an edict of death. But God, right? So we look at these verses and we see a few things going on. Um, it, It says that the... Um, They struck all their enemies with the sword there in verse 5. But the Lord gave them a greater weapon than just their swords. Because it also says that the fear of the Jews fell upon them, them being the enemies. And it says no one could stand. Doesn't mean that the enemies failed to attack. It just meant no one could prevail against the Jews. Because the Jews believed in Mordecai's decree, they had new courage and they were not afraid of the enemy. Their courage put fear into the hearts of the enemy. But there's another aspect of this fear that helped the Jews to give the Jews their victory, and that was the people's fear of Mordecai. God had given Mordecai his high position and his great reputation, and Mordecai used his authority to do the will of God. God provided, so, so God used Mordecai, but God also provided unity among the people. The threat of destruction brought them together as a nation. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 26. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. 
If one Jew suffered, they all would suffer. And if one fought against the enemies, then all would join them. So God provided that unity. God also provided in such a way that no one that attacked the Jews could stand against them. Right? The Jews were not trained as warriors. They had been, they had been t- taken over. They were, they were part of the Persian Empire, but they, they, weren't, um, they weren't given the opportunities. None of the nations that were taken over by the Persian Empire were given opportunities to fight back. They weren't given training to where they could potentially overthrow Persia. And so the Jews stood to defend themselves with, with swords that maybe they'd had possession of for, for nine months, let alone learning how to use them. It's exactly right. That timing that of... Right. Yeah, he... He gave them, gave them that time, but also, um, so we had the, um, the play at Mannheim Central was last weekend, and it was Hunchback of Notre Dame, and there's a couple of scenes that they did some, with some sword fighting, and they were wooden swords, completely safe, and was out in the lobby after the play and um, was talking to the mom mom and dad of one of the one of the boys that was was sword fighting Ben and another parent came up and was just like how did Ben learn to do that and they said well when we did Robin Hood that was Andrew's freshman year so three years ago they had somebody come in to actually train them on how to use a sword on stage, how to fight on stage, because they needed that for Robin Hood. And so they said that Ben had just had just loved being able to do that, and so he had been practicing and, and just having fun with it over the last three years. And so when it came to this point where he had to do these couple of scenes with sword fighting in, um, in Hunchback of Notre Dame, the director actually allowed him to choreograph those scenes. So he took what he had learned three years ago, what he had had played around with for three years to get to where he could do two small scenes that were choreographed with sword play. And here they needed more than nine months to be able to master a sword. But God gave them those nine months and then gave them the power and the knowledge and the ability to miraculously be able to fight off and defend themselves with a sword. But God also provided that psychological aspect. Other people groups feared the Jews. So it was not just a physical battle. And we think back on the story of Rahab in Joshua, and she cried out to God and said that everyone in the land was panicking because they knew of the power of the Lord. Right? It's that same idea is happening again, that, that God, they knew the power of God was behind the people. But then 
there was support from the Persian officials. God provided support from where the Jews least expected it because of Mordecai. Every single government official stood with them. So God used the pagan government to protect his people. God does not just reign over those who comply with his will, but even with those who do not. So God was at work in some mighty ways. But then we can look into some more of the details of the battle. Um, Esther 9, 6 through 16. I told, I warned her, there were a lot of names in there. Just do your best. Power through. She did great. But now we get to the details of the battle. So how many Persians were killed just in the city of Susa? 500. Plus the 10 sons of Haman. Or they may have been in that 500. Hard to tell, but... We know it included, those that died included those ten sons of Haman. And how many throughout the entire Persian Empire? 75,000. That feels like a lot of people, right? But we have to recall that Edict of Mordecai only allowed for the Jews to defend themselves. They weren't allowed to launch preventative attacks. They weren't allowed to launch an attack to start anything. They were strictly allowed to defend themselves once they had been attacked. So here, if we think just about the city of Susa, it's impressive that 500 men in one city attacked Jews, and all 500 times the Jewish man was victorious. Mm -hmm. It's not that they weren't to be touched, it was that 
they were allowed to defend themselves if they were. Oh. Oh no, they knew. They knew, but but they are going to look at it. They're going to look at it as so. N number one, there was still a significant amount of hatred toward the Jews. Uh, there's still that because they know they're allowed to defend themselves. But they're looking at it in that whole nine months for them to master using a sword, I'm better than they are, right? They knew they could defend themselves, but they did not expect them to actually be able to handle it. That would be, um, yeah, they, they, they had that nine months the, when they cast the pure at the beginning, when Haman did, and made it the last possible month that was God giving his people the time they needed. I just thought that when you hear that edict, you think that the people would say, okay, we can't touch them. That edict is reversed and we can't right. touch them. So, okay, we'll just go back to living and whatever. Yeah. But apparently they didn't listen. <laughs> well, they, and they heard it and just saw that their, I mean, their vision was clouded by hatred and they didn't, they didn't see the King of Kings and Lord of Lords as being over each and every one of those battles and over the Jewish men learning how to fight and defend themselves in that way. Right, right. Yeah, they, they, that's it. They just went for it. That's exactly right. And so in, in Susa, the home of Esther, the home of Mordecai, the city that had witnessed Mordecai the Jews rise to power and the fast fall of Haman. 500 men still dared to attack the Jews. Right, and it's the, there is a level that they were potentially still loyal to Haman. And still wanted to carry out his, his, because remember, this is also the city that bowed down to Haman, right? Same, same city. Um, Maybe they didn't hear about it the same because they didn't have cell phones. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, they sent out their fast, remember last time they sent out their, their swift horses so that everybody would know in all the languages. So they should have known. Um, but if you remember back to also to that first edict, the, um, the thing that Haman used to convince King Ahasuerus was that idea of the plunder, right? This can make us rich if we kill all, the, all of this group of people. Because he didn't say the Jews, if we kill all of this group of people. Um, so it's possible, too, that they weren't just... I mean, there was a level of, there had to have been a level of hatred. I can't imagine somebody doing that just for money. But there would have been a level of, I can get something out of this too, um, for just one day of, of fighting some se seemingly helpless Jewish man, and I can take all, of, all that he has. And so... Um, so there were still lots of reasons that they may have, that these 
500 in Susa and 75,000 over the whole empire may have attacked. But we remember that it was the Jews were not the aggressors. And so when we think of those 10 sons of Haman, we realize all 10 of those sons of Haman stood to fight against the Jews. Um, they, they all 10 were then slain. Um, and just a, a side note, they were hanged on, on, on gallows. And remember that was more being impaled than actually hung like we think of being hung. They would have been um, uh, impaled. And it was, it was there as a warning. Um, you know, we talked about when, when in, um, during the Feast of Purim, the Jews, they'll, have, they'll either stomp their feet or have noisemakers whenever the name of Haman is read. Um, the, in the text of the Hebrew scriptures, those 10 names are listed to be on the page. They're arranged on the page to look like to look like a gallows, to look like that straight pole that would, so um, the, they did a lot to, to have you remember what was happening. Yeah. And, and, and Esther was showing that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Esther was, was really, it was, was making an example out of them. This is what happens when you stand against, and, and she knew it was against God's people. Did you read, I have a question too. They were allowed to kill women and children. Right. There are no, they, the, yeah, the Persians were allowed to kill women and children. The Jews were allowed to kill anyone that attacked. And so the Jews didn't take it any farther than just the men who attacked them. Right, there is definite restraint. Even, so even though this sounds harsh, and we're going to get to that in just a minute, this sounds really harsh. There was restraint that they exercised. But these ten men, these sons of Haman, they were following in the footsteps of their father. Right? They saw something that their father was passionate about, and so they too adopted a hatred of the Jewish people. Haman had led them to be so passionate about this hatred that they followed him to death. Now, I don't know how many of you are into college basketball, and I don't know how many of you created brackets for the March Madness, but this is the time of year when you turn on the TV on the weekends, that's what you see is all these, um, these very passionate fans um, and some of the craziness of the fans, and these are the diehard fans. They are passionate. They teach their children to be passionate. In our house, we are divided as fans of two rival schools. We want the kids to be fans of our team. I have lost Andrew, and it is sad. <laughs> right? But we have to remember 
that there are so many things that are so much more important than a sports team. We need to teach our children, but also anybody else who is in our sphere of influence to be passionate for the right things. Um, I was there on, on my, my cats team, right? They never perform well in the tournament, so they are already out. But um, there is a young man, his name is Oscar Shibwe, and he is a phenomenal basketball player. And he will have a very lucrative career as a basketball player. Um, but he is also a very humble man. And he, uh, he said, this just popped up yesterday on my Facebook feed, sports are what we do, but not who we are. Our worth does not come from our performance, but from Christ's performance. We must remember sports are good, but they are not God. Now that's sports, and that's for this, who sports will be his life for many years to come. Sports is what's saving his family in Africa. But we can substitute a lot of different things instead of sports are what we do, but not who we are. It could be raising my kids is what I do, but not who I am. It could be being a teacher is, not, is what I do, but not who I am. Because our worth does not come from our performance as this or that or the other. Our, our performance means nothing compared to what Christ did for us. And so those ten sons of Haman were passionate about the wrong thing. We also see in our passage that Esther made a request for a second day of fighting against, in the city of Susa against the enemies of the Jews. Why do you think she made that request? Why did Esther request a second day of fighting in the city, to allow for a second day of fighting in the city of Susa? Right, and, and now it's not just Haman who's died, it's all his sons who have died, right? Yeah, so there still would have been, she kind of had the idea that there would have been a, a need. There would have been a continuing threat. So, yeah, so the... I mean, the king, it tells you partly how Esther influenced the king, but it also tells you the king was paying attention because he knew how important this was to Esther. And so he would have called her in specifically to say, hey, this, this is happening. Is this what you really wanted? 
you know, th this is what you asked for. And, and so he is, he is asking her, is there anything else? Did this take care of it, or is there anything else that we can do? Um, and, he, and, and it's those same reasons we talked about last week, that he, um, he, he may have had some guilt. He doesn't make decisions on his own. And, and, but he definitely wanted to make her happy. And this was a, asking, asking her what, what she wanted was, was going to fulfill all of those things. Um, the key we need to think about in this, because um, some people will ask the question, was Esther wrong for asking for another day of killing? Um, because Haman's edict only called for one day, right? The author doesn't condemn or vindicate her, so there's not a way that we can make a definite call on her motive. We don't know exactly why, but we do remember the Jews were still defending themselves only. And 300 more men died that second day when they tried to fight against the Jews, even after they had seen what happened the day before. Yeah, a little bit. And so the Haman's strongest support was in the capital city where people had bowed down to him, had benefited from his favors, and it would be easy for them to get together and plan their strategy. Esther wanted to be sure that none of them would survive to cause further trouble. Perhaps she had heard private intelligence that Haman's supporters had planned to attack again, um, but we don't know. But we know that 300 more did attack and were killed because they did. And then in other parts of the empire, 75,000 men were killed in one day. And that shows just how many people hated the Jews and wanted to destroy them. It averages out to about 600 per province. And if we remember, the Jews were greatly outnumbered in the empire. Their victory was certainly a tribute to their courage and their faith. And when we think about this emphasis of this section, of this passage on, on this killing and this destruction, it seems really harsh. It feels really harsh. To hear that 75,000 people died in one day, that's heavy. But we have to remember that this was divine justice. An attack on God's people is an attack on God, and none of the victims were innocent. They all attacked first. Three times also, there are three times in, that it is recorded in verses 10, in verse 15, and verse 16 that the Jews did not take any of the plunder. No biblical author ever repeats something because his memory failed as he was writing. They didn't they didn't write it because they forgot that they wrote it. Three times in Esther chapter 9, the author points out that the Jews had the opportunity to plunder the goods of those that they killed, but that they refused to do so. The Jews did not fight back for financial gain. 
they were interested in survival. And the Jews certainly would have been plundered if they had lost. That was the main reason, right, that Haman gave for writing his edict. But God's people exercised great restraint. And so I want to encourage you in this. God does not have to, today, God is, we don't have an, an edict out on our, on our heads. There's not a, a price on our heads. God does not have to save his people from annihilation in the same way today. But just like God started working out his plan for my life and my career in a way I never expected, he will work things out for you too. It may not look like you think it will, but it will be for the good. So we will not have study next week because of spring break, and then we're going to learn about uh, why the Jews celebrate with feasts like Purim as we finish chapter 9 in, on April 4th. So you are dismissed to your small groups.